Hello everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. I hope you guys can hear me. I'm having some problems. <laughs> <laughs> Technical problem. Just right. Technical. And that's the theme, the theme of the day. And um, yeah, hopefully this whole daytime savings thing hasn't thrown your schedule off too much. Because <laughs> I forgot, I forgot about that today. Oh yeah, I know. I woke up this morning and I was like, how is it seven o'clock already? <laughs> so <laughs> and my apologies to the audience at home or wherever you're watching, because I've got a bit of a tickly throat, so I've got some tea. Um, so I will be sipping my tea from time to time to keep the throat lubricated. But anyway, I hope all of you joining us for the next hour are, are fine and happy and, and are doing well. So we are experiencing some technical difficulties getting our guests online. Um, hopefully we can resolve that. Um, we will hopefully be joined by Dr. Carmeletta Williams. She's with the Black Archives of the Midwest in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, hopefully you caught that show with her, which I think we did back in January. And in the course of talking to her, um, she, Donia already knew about this history. This was completely new for me about women, Black American women who served in World War II. And they were called the 6th Battalion. And they were posted, they basically handled post. They didn't just handle the post, they were like moving mountains of post. What these women did was just absolutely incredible. And Donnie, I know you're such an enthusiast. Do you want to jump in on this one? Yes. So this one right here, you guys, um, it kind of blew my mind when I first found it. I first found this information back in February of 2017. These women, so this is when I was like really kind of tired of Black History Month being about the same people. And I was just determined to just start looking at other stuff and finding other things. So I, I started um, going through all of this other stuff and I found these women. And Brian, I think she's calling me on the phone right now. <laughs> so you take over, I'm gonna mute. <laughs> so basically these were American women who were Black from all over the country um, who wanted to do their bit. They wanted to step up and they wanted to, to serve their country. And they were stationed in both England and France. And I guess the situation that they inherited, there was a real backlog of, of post. Um, and you can imagine fighting on the front lines, keeping in touch with your family and friend, you know, friends back home kind of geed you up and kind of got you through the horrors of, of what you were doing. Um, I'm not entirely sure whose idea it was to create this kind of special branch, the, the 6888, but whoever did, they did it. They got thousands of women um, who, as I said, were, were posted in, in both England and France. And their main task was to tackle this male backlog. And there's some really cool videos on YouTube about this, Donnie, because I was learning that they worked from morning till night. Yes, they did. And Dr. Carmeletta has just joined us. <laughs> so she's, she's trying to get on now. <laughs> so I'm so excited that she's here. There she is. <laughs> I had four o'clock, but I guess that's Eastern time. <laughs> yes, that's Eastern time. <laughs> oh, we missed you so much. You're such a great storyteller. No one can tell this story like you, even though we know it. We know this story. I just felt like you're such a great storyteller. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Williams. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah. So I've, I've just given the broadest of broad outlines. I've explained that this was an entirely um, female outfit, um, Black American women stationed in, in England and France. And that's kind of where we are at the moment. Okay. Uh, yes. But I was just going to say, I've, I've seen a couple of videos about them um, on YouTube, and there were some really wonderful ones from women who actually served. Um, you, I, I'm not sure if they're still with us. These are pretty old videos. I think they were probably done in, in, the, in the 1980s. But the, the picture that they, that, they, that they actually portrayed us, they, they were talking about their experiences. 
was done just incredible. I mean, do you know whose idea it was in the American military to even form this battalion? I don't. Uh, I don't know whose idea it was. I know that they were a military unit and they had had white men working the mail for years. And people in the European theater just weren't getting their mail. And so um, these women took over that position and in just a matter of months, they had all the mail sorted and, and out to the folks. They didn't deliver the mail, but they sorted it and packaged it so that the people in the fields could get it. Yeah, because on um, the videos I was watching, they, were, they, they said they literally worked from morning until night. They did, they worked in shifts. 12-hour uh, shifts, and um, they just got in and got it done. You know, when you're talking about resiliency, uh, you know, not just that it's Black History Month just passed and it's Women's History Month, but a Black woman can get things done. She <laughs> can. White men in there for a long time and nothing was happening. Um, and they were, they were determined because their motto was no male, low morale. So they wanted to make sure that those people who are out in the fields fighting the war for this country could at least get their meal. <laughs> and it seemed as though they were doing a lot of, even though that was their primary purpose. I remember one woman, one lady, and I, I wish I could remember her name in, her, in the video interview. She was saying that she started out by, by driving trucks, that she had done her training in Massachusetts of all places. I can't remember what base she trained on. But then she was thrown somewhere in the Midwest, I want to say Indiana, Illinois, and she's driving a truck. And then the next thing she knows, she's in England. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I want to say Commander Ely, but I mean, I may be wrong about the title, but she just jumped right in and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. All the women uh, bought into it, that they had a mission here and a purpose, and that was their war effort was to make sure that this part happened. And they were very proud women and they worked very hard and they all, all were already in the military. So it wasn't like these were people who volunteered to go into the army to move mail. Uh, they were already in the service, and, but they wanted their service to, to count and to be valuable and to develop and that's exactly what they did. Like, I would love to be able to speak to one of the women who actually served or a close family member that might have heard the stories. Because I would love to know when they were still here in America, if they, how were they prepped for service overseas? Were, you know, were they prepped? You know, were they told things about, well, if you're going to be in England, this is kind of how the English do things. If you're going to be in France, this is how the French do things. See, those, those are the kinds of questions I would just love to be able to ask them. <laughs> And I don't know what the answer would be. I do know that they were all very aware of race relations at the time. Mm -hmm. And they knew that uh, Black Americans were treated differently in France uh, than they were here in the States. And we all know the story of, of service people being lynched in their uniforms. So they knew that there was an antagonism here against Black folk that crossed those boundaries of the military. And hopefully, uh, they didn't think that they would have to face that same kind of uh, caustic reaction just for their being black. Wow. Also, we see a pride in these women about getting a job done uh, and accomplishment. And that, that's a thread that runs through the military for black people uh, ever since uh, Christmas Addicts, is that um, we're good at what we do, we're better than the other people who have been doing this. And if we do a good job, people will have to acknowledge it. Now, whether or not they got that acknowledgement is a different story, of course. And that's a detail that has to be told. But um, that honor, because those women reach those folks out in the European theater, in the war zones, um, is being acknowledged. And Colonel Carlton Philpott has done an amazing job getting uh, getting their work and, and their lives acknowledged. And, and we have to remember that, uh, like you say, Brian, this is recent enough history that those stories are still there. They're still vivid tales. Their family knows those stories. Uh, I think uh, one of the women was 101 
uh, last time I had heard. So, um, so they're still able to tell their stories, but we have to acknowledge that. And I think what you all are doing here on your show uh, is one of those things that makes this um, special, not just because it's them, but because we're acknowledging those histories. And that's a legacy. They moved 17 million pieces of mail and nobody else could do that. And they did it in a matter of months. And even, even if it were in Kansas City or in New York City, that's an incredible accomplishment. Yes. And to be yes. doing it in the European theater, I think makes it even more. So just for people who may not have caught that number, that was 17 million pieces of mail in a matter of months. Yes. There was um, one thing that I read where they actually walked in when they first got there, they walked into like Coliseum like type building and mail was to the roof, to the ceiling of there. And it was old mail. I think one of the videos that I saw where they discussed it and they were talking about the mail was so high that it was, it was like a year's worth of mail in there where there was old food that people had sent to them. There was, these women had to dig through, I mean, like brownies that had been molded. I mean, stuff that you would think that, that, that you normally send to a soldier, you know, the care packages, those types of things. So they were dealing with mice, rats, any kind of animal you could think. I mean, just everything mold. They were in in toxic in a toxic environment and these women went through it got through it they gave, they were given so much time to get this stuff done and they always did it in half of that time it was the most amazing story i had ever read and heard in my life and i'm like wow black women are awesome they rock <laughs> before hazmat you know it's before you had osha and, and yes. <laughs> They're taking their lives in their own hands and taking that risk just to help. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me about that is if I were a serviceman and I'm on the battlefield and I don't hear from my family, you know, what does that do? And their, their motto, no male, low morale, uh, it just hits the point because you've got these folks fighting, risking their lives, and all they want is a letter from home. And those ladies are in those warehouses, uh, just stacked up and, and riding and, and getting. And there were there were white men who, who worked those places and, and they couldn't put a dent in that meal. And those women went in and got it done in a couple of months. Well, I'm thinking about the ones who were stationed in England particularly. And again, because I had lived there for so long, I'm, I'm very familiar with the part of England that they um, were stationed in. So not only were they getting into a backlog of mail, they were in an active war zone. You had German warplanes flying overhead, dropping bombs, and they're still sorting out that 17 million part, you know, pieces of pieces of mail. Yeah. And you know, and, and we say European theater and expect people to understand what that is, but I appreciate you drawing that picture. It is a war zone. You know, and they are in a war zone uh, away from home. They didn't, they weren't like a group of people. You know, they coalesced as they got there because they had common goals. Mm -hmm. yeah. And one lady was actually saying that <clears throat> she was stationed in England and they were actually helping the wounded when needed. I guess, you know, I guess if all hell is breaking loose, you know, it's like, yeah. We know you're here to do the mail, but the mail can wait. We kind of need you to deal with this person who's you know, bleeding or whatever. Yeah, we've got blood. And this woman was, she was just so calm and she was kind of describing these scenes and scenarios. And the, the thing that even came through in, in, in her older years was this real can-do attitude. It's like, fine, tell me what you need me to do and I will, you know, and I'll do it. Just, just, just point me, point me where you need me to be. And we still carry that attitude. Black women still carry that attitude. But Brian, you asked the question. You asked who started this. Mary McLeod Bethune had a lot to do with it, along 
Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. So when I found the story, it says the Women's Army Corps, WAC in short, of the U.S. Army was created by a law that was signed by President Franklin D. Roosevelt on July 1st, 1943. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt and civil rights leader Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune called for African-American women to serve as enlisted personnel and officers in the WAC with several units of white women sent to serve the European theater of the war. African-American organizations pressed the War Department to extend the opportunity to serve overseas to African-American women uh, in WAC, Army Corps, to, the, to them. So in, in November 1944, despite the slow recruitment of volunteers, about a battalion of 817, later 824, enlisted personnel and 31 officers all African-American women drawn from the WAC formed the 6888. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Research is so wonderful. I'm telling you, when I'm, I, I was so enthused. I was so, 2017 just, I was tired. I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired of celebrating the same Black people all the time. That's when it happened. And I found these women and um, I'd, I'd like to, to share the picture with you guys, but I found these women and I was just, I was like, wait a minute, what? And it was just so crazy. So I'm gonna quickly share the screen of, of, these, of these women. And it, it's such an awesome picture and they, they look, they look great. Like, look at them, y'all. Soon as it it pops up, look yeah. at them. They're awesome. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if it's popped up yet. It has. Okay. <laughs> but they 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 look great. They're they're wonderful. And um, it's it don't look like it's popping up. But anyway, <laughs> and these women. I hope I hope everybody else can see them. I know y'all can see them. But these women were marching in line. They did what they were supposed to do. They they had on their dress coats, their white gloves. They were awesome. And it was just one of the most amazing sights to me when I saw that, that I was just, I was just in awe. And I'm, I was like, you can't, you cannot not share that. You cannot not give that its homage. I guess it doesn't surprise me to see the, the discipline in their formation because you you have to be disciplined and you have to be a good team. Right. Tackle a back that was just the backlog. Forget the mail that was still coming in. A backlog is 17 million pieces of mail. I mean, the, the discipline involved in that is just unreal. Right. And you know that that pride in, in the uniform and in your station, we see that throughout throughout all black service people, men and women. Um, we just finished, took down an exhibit, Valor. And it included uh, fighting, black fighting people from Africa to the current day. But there were some wonderful stories, like uh, one, one gentleman's uniform that we had, he only wore it when he was at the Pentagon. And so, and each one was just perfectly starched and pressed, and this, the pleats and the lines were all just perfect. Because that pride we see just carries over. And with these women too, you know, and it's it's hard. I mean, now, I mean, I went to school when if you wore a skirt, you had to wear pants. And if you wore pants, you still had to have a skirt on top of it. But so they're doing in the war zones in skirts and jackets. But that picture, Danya, that you just showed us, that pride permeates its this is what I do. This is who I am. I am representing not just my country, but my race and my people. Mm -hmm. and, and whenever you see those pictures and hear those stories, you know, you just want to go, yes, 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 hallelujah, that we had those folks out there. Because when we talk about racial uplift, there's nothing that's more important, I think, than what we see with people who are protecting us. Mm -hmm. 
And, and they were doing that because they, they still had to train. They still trained for war. They were soldiers. Let's not forget that these women were soldiers as well. So if bombs dropped in their area, they had to stop what they were doing, get their guns and do what was necessary. And it was just an, it's an awesome, awesome. They were an awesome group of women. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize just how topical this particular topic was given, you know, Tucker Carlson's ridiculous comments about pregnant women in the military, women in the military. Mm. You know, take a, look, take a look at those those pictures and how can you not feel pride seeing your country represented that way? Because again, this is kind of the, the other side of the coin from the Buffalo Soldier episode, where we're talking about black men for the first time serving, serving abroad, representing their country and how they were perceived um, in the countries that they were serving in. This is the same for this group of women. Um, I didn't hear any of them in the videos, the, the video interviews of them speaking about France. They were all speaking about England. And they said that they were actually treated better in England than they were at home. That the English invited them for, you know, for meals, to go to the pub, to go to like um, service dances and all that kind of thing. So they said their experience there was very welcoming and that it was very jarring to kind of come back here. Yes, yes. But they also stated that they were still segregated from their own people because they were segregated. They did have to deal, oh, yeah. yeah, they they did have to eat. They weren't, um, they weren't with Americans. So they were welcomed by the English, but were not welcomed by their own army. Yeah. Which, which was just, was crazy in itself you know they weren't welcomed by their own army so they had to deal with the racism from their own people even though they were doing what they needed to do for their own people but they had to be separate from them and then to top all of this off you guys need to understand and i'm talking about the audience they were not led by a white person a white male or a white woman they were led by a black woman and her name was Charity Early, Major Charity Early. Mm -hmm. uh, she later changed her name, but they were led by her and she did not take anything. So think of your grandmother who didn't take nothing from nobody, that woman that could pick up that shoe and throw it at you and make it turn that corner. That's who she was. <laughs> you know, she she was that's who she was. She was that woman. And she would not, she didn't take anything. She told the 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 head guy, he was like, Oh, I'm getting ready to bring somebody else in here to handle this because he felt like he didn't get what he wanted when he came to visit one time. And she was like, over my dead body. Yeah. You know, she just told him, and he looked at her like, excuse me. <laughs> like, did you just say that to me? <laughs> oh, well, it was the armed forces didn't integrate until 1947. See, with Harry S. Truman, so we we had a segregated military. So whether they're in American or American soil or, or in Europe, the the military itself was still segregated. So they did find other communities of people who. Uh, who respected them. James Baldwin writes uh, about the service people in Paris and the black military men and how they found a respect there among people that they did not find uh, among Americans. So they're in a hostile environment on, on several fronts. One is that they're in a war zone and then they're also in a segregated army. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's crazy for me to think that anyone would have thought it was safer with bombs bombs dropping, bullets flying, that it would be safer in that environment than back home and like wherever they came from. Yeah. Right. And, and well, when we think about these racist attitudes, the whole thing is ridiculous. You know, at, so if somebody gets shot and needs some help, then you have to go get these black women to come and help you fix them up. But you don't want to treat them with, with equity in the military? Come on now, how ridiculous is this? And they're keeping the men's morale up. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Yeah, they're doing all of these things. And it's just an awesome, I mean, you know, 
I don't I just don't think we could have chosen a better group of people to talk about for Women's History Month. And the fact that we're going to and for those that don't know this, we're going to be talking about these women for the next three for these for the rest of this this month, because they have so much that we have to, to talk about. Um, because our stories for them, like right now, we're giving you just the the beginnings of them. You come next Sunday, we actually will be talking with a descendant. You know, we will be getting some of their stories and going into so, those types of things, and we will be trying to find out some other stuff. Although they, if there are about, I think six of them that are still living. Um, we weren't able to pull one in only because she was kind of sickly. So we can't, we weren't able to do that, but both the next two Sundays, we will be talking to descendants and they're going to give us their stories and let us know, you know, information about them and what they're doing. And then the fact that they're actually going to now give them a congressional medal of honor. You know, these are things that's going to be happening. We could not have chosen a better group of women to discuss as far as Women's History Month. And how long, how long has it taken to get that Congressional Medal of Honor momentum going? Huh? How many years, how many years has it been that people have lobbied for them to get Cong Congressional Medals of Honor? Right, Edna will be talking about that, the person that will, she'll be coming in to discuss that. So all of those different things, but these women have done so much. We're gonna learn about just the 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 trials that they went through, the, the tribulations and, and all of their, just everything. Huh? Commander Carlton Philpott, who was commander at Fort Leavenworth, has a monument uh, dedicated to them at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Wow. So, yeah, and he is he is the repository of insight on them. So uh, you should speak. Yeah, you were them. sending me information about that. Can you go into detail with that? With the commander? Yes. Uh, well, he was also responsible for getting the Buffalo Soldier Monument uh, established at Fort Leavenworth. So um, I'm not, I don't know about his military career, but I do know that he has done yeoman's work in getting the work of black military people acknowledged uh, and informed, and, and not just a plaque on the wall or that kind of thing. These are, are beautiful, big monuments that express um, in, in, in a certain level, uh, the work that they did. You know, when you talk about Buffalo Soldiers, you know, that's immense. And there were men and, and women who, who were in the Buffalo Soldiers, but also the six triple eight. What they did was monumental. We're talking about 17 million pieces of mail with more mail coming in as Brian so um, accurately pointed out the whole time. Um, how big does this need to be to acknowledge them? I am so glad that you're dedicating this month to them because they certainly deserve it. Not yes. only as a source of pride for black women, black people, black military people, but also for this country and this entire country. They deserve a Congressional Medal of Honor. They deserve more than that and their, their heirs Heirs in the signs forever, as the saying goes. Uh, they deserve to be acknowledged too, because this is a family event. That's my name. Um, so I, I'm glad that you you found them and that you are 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 uh, eliminating their their legacy because they've certainly done their work. Well, you made my my mouth drop open when you were on the show the first time because I had never heard of them. Donya had. I had never heard of them before. And I'm thinking, and just in the, the brief bit that you were relaying on that show, I'm thinking, well, I know the image of Rosie the Riveter. I've seen you know, all the, the pictures of the men who fought both black and white and the, uh, the Native Americans who were doing the, the code breaking. Never knew, the black, never knew that black women served during World War II until, until you said something. I think, I think that's a real shame. 
you know, if that, if that is a general. You know I look at it the other way. I think this is great. So now we're getting information out that people didn't know before. And that's because you have this forum, this wonderful forum uh, that we can talk on and share information on. You know, there's so much and our history is so deep and vast that there are many things that we have missed. So as long as they're coming to the forefront and being illuminated, uh, to me, that's a major goal. That's a major accomplishment. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that, actually. It's like when people come to the Black Archives, if they say, this is my first time here, I don't say, where you been? I'm like, oh, cool. You know, you'll be back once you get here. And it's the same thing with learning about all these wonderful Black folks who are out doing incredible things for this country, for our race, um, and for our communities. I'm just glad to see their, their work and their lives being illuminated. I also don't take exception to talking about those same people uh, that we talk about every year. I just like to see it expanded. And I, I think that what you're doing here by expanding the, the corpus of people that need to be acknowledged, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. Are you aware of any of the women who decided to make the military a permanent career for themselves? One of the women whose uniform that we had um, in Valor, she is retired military. She is now uh, president of the uh, Red Tails Association. And, wow. uh, and she lives in Kansas City and, and she's made that career. She's made that life. And, and, uh, and she's a person too that needs, we acknowledged her of course in the exhibit, but she's someone who's alive and walking and pushing other people around and helping them get places and she has those stories to tell well you need to get her on that get give get her name to us i will i will i'll get red tails are you serious serious i'm serious she's she's pressing association so uh, when i get back to the office tomorrow i'll send you that information please that is so awesome see i mean these are things that our young women of all races need to understand and, and know because I'm a huge proponent of trying to, I feel like if you if you teach it and, and they know information will allow them to recognize and realize that we every set in every way, shape, and form, that we didn't just all of us sudden start doing things during the Martin Luther King era, you know, stuff happened well okay. before him and happened and they don't know about that. So, so and who I'm trying to get up there because she was actually, she sat down before she didn't look the part. She didn't look the part. So that's why they didn't they didn't use her. She was pregnant and 15. That's I mean, one of the things that we teach and we need to make clear. Rosa Parks wasn't the first woman who refused to give up her seat. But just like uh, COVID and some, she was at least the fifth who had been arrested. Yes. But she was chosen because she didn't have a child out of wedlock. She was married. She had a profession. She had respectability. And they didn't want whoever this face was going to be to be someone that could be attacked. So that's why they chose. And she worked for the organization. She worked for Dr. King and, and the Montgomery Improvement Association. Yep. Um, and her husband was terrified for her to do that because he knew that she would be a target. So, yep. but she determined to do that. So, and there are other people. So I don't, one of the things that when I was teaching, I tried to make clear is that this stuff didn't happen by accident. It wasn't an accident. Rosa Parks was not a tired seamstress who refused to give up her seat. They knew what bus to put her on because the driver of that bus was knew someone no, he had a reputation for throwing people off and getting them arrested. And they knew that he would do that. So they, they knew the time, the bus, the driver, and she was handpicked for this. 
I wasn't an accident. You know, and then people talk about nonviolence during the civil rights movement. Well, the deacons of defense were right outside of camera shot and they were armed. They had rifles. So they weren't, they didn't completely say, okay, I'm at your mercy. Uh, the deacons were there and we need to know, people need to know that the deacons for defense were part of the civil rights movement. Also, we should start calling it the modern civil rights movement because there were many civil rights movements, human rights movements before then. Yes, oh, we would just last uh, Sunday, our, our show last Sunday showed that with Majeska because Majeska Simpkins, the person that we were talking to, well, Brian was talking to, <laughs> talking about last week, um, Majeska Simpkins, she was one of the ones she, well, that was happening, what, in the 40s? Brian, the, those particular things was happening in the 40s and and those things were going on when she was single-handedly going to the Klan meetings and and standing there and making phone calls, not getting upset because she said, my phone number isn't listed, so I don't care. You know, she was doing those kinds of things. We, these women, these women in history were strong and, and, and they fought and they did their thing. And, and these women, this 6888, they were the one, they, they showed their strength and they showed the strength of black women. And I just feel like this is why we have to talk about it. And this is this is the, the stuff that we need to teach all of our children so they understand that this is the that, that we all played a part in making America what it is today. And you need to stop thinking that you're superior because you're not. Well, because actually you just made me think of it. And it's it's actually feeding off of something else that Carmeletta said. So you're talking about black women sorting post war men most of whom are going to be white, that they couldn't socialize with. Even outside of the United States, they were still kept separate. Right. Because I'm sorry, I would kind of, maybe I would feel a kind of way about that, sorting all this pose, lifting the morale of other people going, mm, if you were to bump into me in the street, you'd look the other way. You wouldn't even acknowledge me because I'm black and I'm a black woman. But they didn't. They got their heads down and they, you know, they, they did what they, um, they did what they had to do. I, I think what's more important for us to recognize is that they knew about, about discrimination. They had faced it their whole lives from the time they were born. But also they had such pride in what they were doing and their representation of the race that it transcended all of that. So they, they knew that those white men didn't respect them. Many of them did not respect them. But they had a pride in what they were doing and that they were black women doing it. And that's what was the catalyst to keeping them motivated and keeping them going. It wasn't because they had this love of the, of the white guys out there with guns. It, it was that personal pride and that racial pride that kept them going. Right. Right. I'm so excited about this whole show. This this show and everything. So um, another thing about the 6888 is that I don't know, as far as the Congressional Medal of Honor, one of the people that we're going to talk to is a lady by the name of Cummings. Name what? The person, Edna Cummings. Oh. And um, she leading up the Congressional Medal She's been doing it a while. I don't know the day anything, but she will be talking to us at the end on in the last Sunday about these women and women. about them is that Mary Raglan and her your voice keeps uh yeah you're, you're gonna have to repeat the last two sentences. Yes. <laughs> Can you hear me now? I'm frozen. Frozen. Jesus. Anyway, the, um, the, our last guest this month for Women's History Month um, in the third installation of this series is a woman called Edna Cummings who's just been championing uh, this formal recognition, the, the Congressional Medal of Honor. So because we were, we were definitely looking forward to, um, to having her on the show and um, in her viewpoint. Are you back with this, Donia? Nope. Am I? No. Oh. 
what what I think what one of the significant things about a Congressional Medal of Honor is that the country finally admits that these women deserve that recognition. And so it is now permanently and historically and forever in that record. Uh, it may be years later, I mean, many, too many years later, should have happened immediately, but it didn't. But that recognition is happening. They were American service people and they deserve that recognition and they did work that no one else was able to accomplish. So I, I think it's so great that it's, it's being put into the congressional record. Well, again, I mean, I, I feel as though I owe a debt of gratitude to the, you said his name, the, the military man at, um, was it Fort Leavenworth? Oh, Colonel Carlton Philpott, I'm commander. The, the commander for the work that he did with the Buffalo Soldiers and with the AAA and to people like Edna Cummings, who, you know, who personally take on the mantle of, of championing for people. Because I'm going to admit, for me, it's just, it's exhausting continually having to prove that our people were here, we were here from the beginning and that we did stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know, I mean, I might be viewing it in the wrong way, but it's almost as though there is an element, and it's not everyone in America, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's every white person in America because I know it's not, but it just seems as though there's a segment of our society that pushes for the erasure of our contributions so they can then turn around and it's like, well, you get, your people never did anything. Right, right. And again, yeah. I've African-American studies for 28 years. Every single semester, someone, black or white, in the class would say, how come we didn't learn this in high school? And then I'd have to tell them about people who write the textbooks, people who publish the textbooks, people who sell them and buy them, and how those folks wanted to protect their image in history. So they didn't put it in. The state of Texas doesn't mention slavery. Now, how does that happen? But they wanted to protect their image, so they left out those things that had that negative um, scam against them. Yeah. So, so it was deliberate. It was deliberate. And so not only did our people not learn it, their people didn't learn it either because they took it out. It was erased. Well, guess what? You just cannot erase the life and history and culture of a folk. You just can't do it. So what you're doing now with your show and what we try to do at the archives is to say, uh, no, no, that doesn't work. Erasers don't, don't catch on here. Uh, and we're going to tell those stories. And, and there are some things that, that I, I hear on a daily basis that I'm going like, oh, wow, you know what? I didn't know that. And I think I'm smart. <laughs> but it's just in a way. So well, again, even, you know, even in terms of promoting this episode on social media, I mean, one of one of the ways that I did it was saying, if your grandfather received mail or a postcard in World War II, Chances are one of these women actually actually had both that letter. Right. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. So I mean, but that that's the that's the whole thing, you know. The 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 reason for this show and, and why we do what we do is to to teach and to stop the erasure. Because I I welcome people to challenge what we're what we're saying. I welcome it. Like, if you think that we're wrong, if you think that the information that we're putting out in, out here is incorrect, tell us why. You know, come come and challenge. We, we challenge us. Give me, tell me why I'm wrong. You know, because I want to know. I, I need to make sure it's right because what Dr. Williams just said about Texas and the um, taking slavery out that angered me so much. Because to me, that was a slap in my my great-great-grandmother's face. You don't sit up here and call my great-great-grandmother a worker as if she got paid. Right. You, you don't call my two-times great-grandmother um, a worker when she had babies so that y'all could have more enslaved people. You don't call my two-times great-grandmother a worker when some of those babies she never saw again. She wasn't, you know, you just, you just took her kids. Right. That, 
that was a slap in the face. That's when I got angry. That's when I was like, you know what? This is ridiculous. Y'all have got to stop. This is when it has now become way too much. That that was just over the top. Right. You know, and, and for someone to actually come out your mouth and now say, oh, you're not enslaved. Well, no, I'm not. But in the same, but my, my two times great grandmother was, and I'm not ashamed of that. There's no shame in that. And to be as strong as, as she was is, is a blessing because if it was me, if the roles were reversed, she wouldn't be here today. And I knew, and I know what I know, she wouldn't have made it. I'm just glad that it was her and not me because I made it because of her. I wouldn't have made it. Not being the person that I am, not having the the the, the insight that I have and and just the 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 mindset that I have. I fight. I will fight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just that's who I am. I will fight. And I'm not going to sit here and let nobody do something to me. They're going to take me out immediately, immediately. So my grandmother, she would have never made it. My child would have never made it through this world. So I'm, I, I'm, no, I'm not strong as she is. But I have people all the time say, I wouldn't have took that if I'd been a slave. I'm going like, you know what? You would have done what you had to do to survive. To survive. Because if they killed you, then they win. And yeah. there's nothing that you do for yourself or your kids or your family. So you have to survive. Yeah. What makes you think they just took it? They didn't just take it. I'm working on a book now. Um, and it's about enslaved mothers. So I've been a mother since I was 20 years old. And it's like, if what would it, if I don't own my own body, then what does motherhood mean? So I'm looking at that Voices of Resistance is the name of, of my working title of my manuscript. They didn't just take it, but they had to survive. And there are wonderful stories out there. There's a story of, of a woman uh, on Sapelo Island who had one child. And her owner told her, and I'm calling him the owner, not the master on purpose, that he would never sell her child. He sent her to the mainland to get some groceries because she was the cook. When she came back, her daughter was gone. Mm-hmm. She looked around, she asked folks, where was her daughter? Nobody would tell her. So finally that evening, one of her friends said, the master sold her. She didn't cry, she didn't scream, she didn't holler. But every day she ground up a little bit of glass in his food. She was the cook. Mm. Getting sicker and sicker, he started throwing up blood. The doctor came and they thought, but he had all kinds of diseases and uh, he kept getting sicker and she kept putting more and more ground glass in his food. They thought he had been voodoo. They called the witch doctor in to try to reverse it because the MD, the medical doctor, couldn't fix it. And she was quiet. She didn't make any noise about it until he died. And then she got her revenge. You know, but that is a voice of resistance. And there are other stories about things that people did. Had she screamed and hollered and cussed him, he'd had her beaten and he probably would have sold her to him. And she wouldn't have ever been able to exact any revenge. She wouldn't have been able to fight back, Tanya. But uh, she got him back. And she got him with her voice of resistance by, by slowly. And, and then she had to watch him be tortured. I mean, that wasn't a fast, fast death. No, it wasn't. Slowly. See, but I wouldn't even thought like that. If I'm, I'm thinking about my mind right now, the, the mind that I have, and I wouldn't have made it. And I wouldn't have thought like that. You with the mind that I have. And I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have thought that. You wouldn't have had that mind. Yeah. I, yeah. Sort of yeah. Your life would have been different. And especially, and that was her only child. But what if you had other children? You would have to protect those kids. You wouldn't just take it. So I don't want people to think that enslaved people just took it. They didn't just take it. You know? That's very true. 
were ways that, that they got back. They resisted what was going on. I mean, it's common that they would, uh, field workers would break tools or, or blame the animals so that they couldn't plow or, or poison the animals uh, to slow down the work. Uh, so there were a lot of ways that, that they resisted. But the number one thing was that you had to stay alive. There was nothing that you could do if you allowed them to kill you. And 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 that goes back to the six triple eight because Major Charity, because she was a major, she was the highest ranking um, woman during that time, and you know she fought back and she did it in a way that that no one else could. You know when this when that general came in and he wanted to see, he wanted to visit and he wanted to see all of them, but everybody couldn't be there because they worked those those three those shifts the way that they did. So some had to be in doing the mail, some had to be cooking, some had to be doing something. So he, she got the ones together that could be there and they were there and they had their uniforms on and they were clean and they, you know, he did whatever it was that they had to do during that time period. And, um, and when they did all of that, He's like, I want to see everybody. She was like, well, unfortunately, you can't because this group is doing this and this group because they were set up in five different battalions and they all had different things that they had to do. And there was one battalion that had to sleep because that battalion was going to be the next battalion to go. You know, they had to sleep. And so that's when he was like, oh, I'm, I need to send in a white man to come in to do this because you don't know what you're doing. That's when she was like, over oh, my dead body. I know exactly what I'm doing. What you're not going to do is come in here and mess this up. And disrespect. And he respected her for that. Yeah. He respected her for that. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. I was. I'm like. I mean, you know, you know that that one where they standing up that meme and she's standing up and clapping. That was me. I'm like, get him, get him. <laughs> That's right. You know, I have to wonder if. There's if they had any kind of long-term effect on on women serving. I mean, I know that somewhat. You know, I know, know that white women were serving, and especially like the Korea afterwards, the Korean War and and whatnot. But for that time period, I wonder if they made it made a lasting impression about women in service. I think they did. Thinking about what Tucker Carlson said and all of that. The man that responded, he said one of his in his tweet, he actually came out and he said, we have the most fiercest army. And it is because of women that there that the army is so fierce. So I think he did. And I mean, let, I mean, let's just let's just be honest. We're meaner than men are. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my dear. <laughs> we are. We're meaner. We're meaner. We, can, we got a streak that a man cannot touch. <laughs> we just have a streak that a man. Come on, you know, come on, Brian. You know that there are moments when you look at your sister and you like, oh, you gonna mess with her for real? Because I got my own sister that I'll be like, you gonna touch Tammy? Nah. <laughs> Not gonna do that. So, I mean, it's just the whole streak with us that we have. And we'll be like, oh, okay, I got you. Yeah. When we get quiet, when we go down and we're like, oh, okay. That's the time that you, you can be like, let me, let me sleep with one eye open. And you need but to. Do you, do you think that comes from a long line? And again, this is possibly touching on the 6888, a long line of specifically black women having to advocate for themselves because if they didn't advocate for themselves, the likelihood is there was no one who's going to advocate for them. But it's always been that way. It's always been that way. From, from the beginning, coming over here, we had, you know. So maybe that was part of, maybe that was part of the six triple eight secret sauces. They were just doing what generations of women before them had to do and what they were doing before they even put on a uniform. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think, and we'll talk about that. Hmm? You know, that real kind of flexible can do just tell me where you need me, tell me where you need my hands or whatever. And 
the job. Well, I, I think job. part of that Danya hit on is that survival instinct. If mm -hmm. you're going to survive, you've got to be tough. Um, I don't think that makes you mean, but I'm going to let her own that if she wants to own it. But, but when we saw Africans coming to this country over 400 years ago, there were men, women, and children. And they were purposefully put in communities with people who didn't speak their language, who were not from their African tribes or communities uh, as a way to break them. And we saw then those people, those, those communities, but especially those women decide that we're gonna be able to talk to each other and we're going to make a family here and we're gonna be a community here. And so that the toughness then, uh, Brian, I think you're right, it then becomes inherent because that's how you survive. That's how you make things work. And as a woman, then you get to be the keeper of the keys and that you're the one who has children. And you're also responsible for making sure if they're not sold away from you or taken away from you, that those kids learn how to survive and how to be strong. When we tell the story of, of enslavement, we never stop with emancipation. We, we always talk about, but look what happened. You know, we can have a 688. 6888. We can have Kathy uh, Williams become a Buffalo soldier uh, because she couldn't get a job doing anything else. So she paraded as a, uh, as a man. So as she could a, a Buffalo soldier, you know, because women know how to survive. And that is partly uh, because of, of what you just said about them having uh, nobody there originally. Uh, to take care of them and to protect them, but also then, how do you keep your race alive? How do you keep your children alive? Well, you keep having more babies if you can. And secondly, you make sure that they survive and that they're strong, that they understand that they're strong. When we hear these stories um, about the six triple eight, I, I don't see them as being uh, heroic heroes to those white men in the field, even though they finally got, most of them, many of them had probably finished their war duty and gone back home by the time the mail got sorted. But they were heroes to our race because they said, regardless to how you treat me, we're better than this. We're stronger yeah. than this, and we're smarter than that. Now you can bring all these troops and battalions of white men in here and you still have 17 million pieces of mail but we're gonna show you what can be done. And that's what they did, that's their motivation. So they go in and they move that mail because they're strong, they're black and they're female. And so they have a lot of things that they have to stand up for. And then that internal fortitude is this is what I can do. Um, you know, it, it carries through. And then young people then who see that, other women who are thinking about, my neighbor just traipsed in and out of here. Uh, while I was on a Zoom, I had to tell her to be quiet. She's a retired Marine. And she's Puerto Rican. She grew up in New York. But her whole thing is, I'm going to be the best Marine that I can be. And it doesn't matter that, you know, I'm female. I'm a good Marine. And for them, they were good soldiers and they were the best that they could be when it came to doing what they did. They called them out you know, from sorting mail to tend to wounded bodies. So they had to be better than, than just ordinary people. They didn't just show up and say, okay, let's see, here's the zip code. They're here and they're there. They're going like, no, this is a duty and they're going to respect the work that we do. And so I am so glad that uh, some people have taken the bull by the horn to get them some congressional acknowledgement. They deserve it. And that is the perfect note to end this episode on, because believe yes. it or not, we are at the top of the hour. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, even though you know we, we, we were having such technical difficulties, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for your enthusiasm. And again, you are a wonderful storyteller too. So thank you everyone at home for joining us this last hour. My name is Brian Sheffield.
And I'm Donya Williams, and we'll see you guys next week. For part two. <laughs> Take care.